To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds and your hard work and perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we're going to read Revelation 3, 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you are either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joel. You guys, that's, uh, so Joel Briggs, he's kind of the resident artist for the fall season. That's his art back there as a... Uh, as we, as we walk through the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're going to see a painting of Jesus and Thomas coming to life as Jesus is revealed through the text. So, um, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Park Hill Church. Uh, my name is Evan, and my wife Sandy, who is on a trip, she'll be back tomorrow, but she and I lead this church together. We love leading this church together, and we're so glad you're here. Um, today is week three in a 12-week series in the book of Revelation. Or better yet, the first line title, The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's the first line of the book, and it's the right title, The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So we've been saying for two weeks now, this is the third week, that word apocalypse, what does it mean? Unveiling, excellent. It means the unveiling. You're pulling back a curtain and seeing something that was always there. And uh, <clears throat> in this book, that's what John's doing. He opens us to see reality as it is. And as we, when, we, when we see reality as it is, we realize, oh, there's Jesus Christ is at the center of the universe. He's the middle of it all. Even though it seems like corruption and political powers and the media are running the world, things are more than they seem. This is the message of Revelation. And this apocalypse reminds us, one day the clouds will fully part and every eye will see Jesus has been here all along, uh, all along, and he's, he's a good authority. He's a good authority. With all the authority abuse that we hear about in the news and even in the church, power abusers manipulating people, with all of these authority abuse stories, it makes us long for the real thing, and it'll be all the sweeter when we see that Jesus is the middle of it all. And, and so, uh, and the end of the story is that Jesus 
wins. The good authority and power of the universe, Jesus, this loving king, he's, he's the eternal champion of time and space, and which is really bad news for everyone who opposes this Jesus, right? Sin and Satan and death and everyone who's deceived by those things will be on the losing side of eternity. So that's what we see in Revelation. It's like a play and there's characters and there's costumes and you have this dragon and this beast and these this multi, multiply horned creatures that have all of these significances from the Old Testament and all the, who follow these beasts are on the losing side because this lamb that looks like it's been slaughtered wins. And the people who come under his authority and recognize him as the center of the universe receive his victory, receive his reward. And so uh, how do you become a person of the lamb? Maybe you're here and you're checking out Jesus, you're checking out church, or maybe you had an up, upbringing in church and you're like, I'm giving it my last shot and you're sitting here. How does one become a person of the lamb? a person of the victory of the Lamb. Uh, everyone equally is invited. Everyone is invited to admit their need of Jesus' forgiveness and healing. And when we accept that and submit everything, our identities, our desires, everything falls at his feet. And we, and we then share in Jesus' victory and join the forever family of God. So it's wild what he extends to all of us. And so this is what the apocalypse reminds us of. We, it opens our eyes to see reality. And as we've been saying for the last two weeks, um, apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, uh, it has two purposes, and they're very practical. Apocalyptic literature, this revealing literature, it uses imagery to tell us something more about reality. It does two things. Number one, it helps us see our present moment in light of our future. You guys, Jesus is physically returning. Like, how many days in a row do we go without thinking of that? It's kind of crazy. If that's the culmination of all things, and we go weeks at a time, I do, I know I do, I go weeks at a time without imagining that. Uh, but Jesus is coming, and he's bringing a city with him, a city with no pain, no tears, and no death, <clears throat> and listen, no marriage, and no singleness. Just perfect unity of all people in Christ. So, like... If that's what he's bringing, if we just get a glimpse of that future city, guess what? We'll never look at our city of San Diego the same. And Revelation gives us that glimpse. And then the second purpose of Revelation and apocalyptic literature like this is to help us see the unseen realities of right now. And this message keeps firing at us through this text. Things are more than they seem. There's more going on than we can know with our naked eyes and our unaided ears. And the greatest unseen reality of the present is what? Is who? The greatest unseen reality of the present is a person. Can you imagine for one second if everyone in South Africa and Sudan, North Korea, Venezuela, Canada, California, if everyone at once knew that, could see that, that the center of everything is a person. And things are more than they seem. In fact, there will be a moment when everyone knows this. The scriptures talk about this moment every eye will see and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on the earth, above the earth, under the earth. Don't know what that means, but it's everyone. Everyone will see reality as it is. And at the middle of everything is a person. And this person knows what it means to suffer. And he knows what it means to weep and to be betrayed by his friends and to forgive his enemies as they're falsely accusing him. And this person is standing in our midst right now behind a thin veil. The incarnate, crucified, risen, ascending, returning king of heaven, Jesus of Nazareth, is standing in the center of this church and that church and that church and every community that gathers to confess him as true Lord of the world over our bodies and over the cosmos. He's in the middle. Don't ask me how. It's one of the great mysteries of Christianity. By the way, um, for thousands of years, the church has taught that that veil, that Jesus is right behind the veil, that veil gets even thinner when we come to the bread and cup. The veil between heaven, God's space, and earth, our space, it grows thin at the Eucharist. 
Jesus says, take, this is my body. This is my cup. And so that's why we do it every week, to encounter him as one family, because we need his presence. Don't ask me how it works. It's one of the great mysteries of Christianity. But make no mistake, as Francis Schaeffer put it, Jesus is there and he is not silent. Not only is he here, but he speaks. He's speaking to me and to you and to the global church and to every human being (laughs) eight billion ways on the planet. Jesus is speaking and he speaks through scripture and through the Holy Spirit. He speaks through creation. He speaks through history. The whole history of the Christ-confessing church of Jesus speaks to the present church of Jesus. This is who we say that Jesus is. That's why, that's doctrine. That's how we got doctrine. It wasn't just made up in some seminary in a smoke-filled room of white men or something. You know what I mean? Like, the doctrine of the church, it came to us through the church answering the greatest question we could ever answer, and that's Jesus saying, who do you say that I am? And then the church for 2,000 years by the Holy Spirit says, I believe in God the Father, the, Son, uh, the, the Almighty, the Maker, and Jesus Christ, His Son. And then we get orthodoxy. And the Spirit speaks through that. And, and not only does the Spirit speak through the community, the Spirit speaks through your community. You get together, you share a meal, everyone confesses Jesus as Lord and says, Holy Spirit, come. And then you begin prophesying and speaking truth and calling out gifts and bringing Truth from Scripture over each other's identity. Like, oh, don't believe the lies that say this because the truth is you are this. And this is what Jesus says. And, this is the, and the Spirit speaks through community. And as we saw last week, we see and hear Jesus more clearly when we obey his voice. He's always speaking, but we see and hear him clearly when we obey. So that, that's the basic message of Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation. So we're covering Revelation 2 and 3 today, two chapters in one day. Um, We're going to start moving quickly through Revelation as the series goes on. We did two weeks in chapter 1, one week in chapters 2 and 3, and next week's like eight chapters or something because it's a 12-week Revelation series. If we can't, it's 22 chapters. We could easily do a 46-week series, but, but, but we're intentionally stepping back This is why Joel didn't read all seven messages to the seven churches. Uh, He read message number one and message number seven. Did you notice that? He read read the message to Ephesus and then Laodicea, the two bookends. Um, Why? Why are we doing it this way? The reason is not to deep dive into the messages, but to deep dive into the messenger himself, Jesus, and ask the question, what is he up to? Why is he doing it this way? So by the way, if you're in a Park Hill community group, uh, I highly recommend you pick one of the messages and just soak in it with your people. Now, what does Jesus hate in this letter? There's several letters where Jesus says, I hate this. (laughs) That's crazy. We don't picture Jesus using strong language, culturally inappropriate language, Uh, but Jesus, you know, he's Jesus, and he says what he says, and we respond accordingly. But, But he also frames it in, I know this about you. And I love that about you. And here's what I have for you. It's better than you can imagine because things are more than they seem. Take one letter, talk about it with your community this week, and really go, why is this strong language here? Uh, And how does this move toward our flourishing in his family? Ask ask that. Because we're not going to do that today. We're not going to deep dive into each letter. Um, So so we're taking in all seven at once, 30,000 feet, and asking, what is Jesus on about? What is he up to? So a simple question for starters, why seven? Why seven messages? There were way more churches than just seven. Why why didn't Jesus have John write to everyone? Uh, Was Jesus playing favorites or something? And the answer is no. In the scriptures, how many days in the first chapter of the Bible, how many days is the creation story narrative? Seven. And from then on, seven is this marker in biblical culture for, for the Jews uh, all through scripture, for Israelites in the Old Testament, and then here in, in, a, in a book to both Gentile and Jewish audience, this word, this phrase, this number seven comes up again and again uh, because what it refers to is completeness. Seven is full, a f- full circle number. It's a full circle. It means the whole, the whole thing, a whole integer. It's 
complete, it's mature, it's everything it needs to be. That's what, you see the spirit with seven eyes, or the lamb with seven eyes. The Old Testament has the seven spirits of God, meaning God is all in for you. It's the whole God loves you, is what the, is that, that's saying. And so by addressing seven churches, Jesus is somehow speaking to the whole church. That's the idea. That's why we can receive it today. So we're, we're part of the seven church, the whole. Um, so this is why in 21st century San Diego, we can come to these messages and ask, what's the whole message Jesus has for us as part of the whole family? Um, and then that leads to another question. Why did Jesus pick those specific seven churches? We just answered why the number seven, but why those seven? We don't know for sure, but I think most likely it's because these seven churches, they have some pretty common issues for us today and for the church everywhere. They face issues common to every culture. I don't care what language or ethnicity or background or class or continent you're from. These issues are everywhere. Uh, so here, here's a simple summary of the seven churches' issues. Are you ready? And they all fit on one slide, which I was happy to see. Good job, Nate. So the church in Ephesus, here's their issue. They value being right over authentically loving Jesus and people. That's not a problem today at all. No one, none of you. Um, so Smyrna is faithful and about to suffer. Okay, that's an issue. Pergamum, they're letting go of Jesus to side with culture outside the church, specifically when it comes to sex and Roman idol worship. And Thyatira is letting go of Jesus to side with false teaching inside the church around the same things, specifically sex and Roman idol worship. Notice Pergamum is, the threat is clearly from the outside. They're just flowing with culture. Pergamum, it's a little more tricky because there's a teacher inside the church that is ripping off culture's worldview and teaching it as if it's Christian. So, so that's interesting. And it's, again, about both are about sex, which I'll get, I'll get to this in a minute, but it's interesting that sexual morality is the only specific sin mentioned twice in all these messages. I, idol worship is another one, but that's very broadly applied for us today in sex, money, power, anything that goes before God. So Sardis is dead, even though they do justice and have a good rep. Um, so that's possible to have a really good reputation and be dead inside. Philadelphia is just crushing it, you guys. I'm so thankful for them. Um, Laodicea, they're doing great. But, uh, not Laodicea, Philadelphia is doing great. Laodicea, their addiction to wealth is making them spiritually lazy and making Jesus want to vomit. Actually, Jesus says, you, you, want, you make me want to spew, is what he spew you out of my mouth. I'm disgusted. Jesus' disgust emotion is triggered by what's happening here. Wait a minute, that's not Jesus, like love your neighbor, go around and uh, approve of everything everybody does or whatever. No, that, that's, yeah, that version isn't Jesus. This version is part of Jesus. This is, the, this is the real Jesus with real, full spectrum of human emotions, including anger, disgust, sorrow, joy, just delight, and, and deep love. So this is Jesus. There you go. So there it is. Um, the basic issues of the seven churches. It seems like they're the basic issues of the whole church everywhere. Um, and notice only two of the seven are f living faithfully to Jesus. And if, if when you read the letter, those two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, those two churches, Jesus goes out of his way to say they're the most persecuted, poorest, and weakest churches. And they're the ones that are living faithfully. They're the least wealthy, the least military, militaristically powerful. So, um, as for the other five of seven churches, Jesus has serious problems with them. They're the wealthy churches, like Laodicea. They're the politically preoccupied churches, the ones whose hearts skip a beat whenever their politician says what they wanted to hear at their national conventions. So 
So they're the politically connected churches. Pergamum, it says Pergamum is where Satan's throne is, a specific Roman-sanctioned worship spot, like a convention for paganism. Um, and, and, and the five churches that he has problems with, they're also the churches who are proud of how right they are, like Ephesus. And Ephesus, and, 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 and then, or Sardis, they're concerned about the reputation. They're concerned about the mask that they bring into church. And they're completely unself-aware because said, Jesus says to them, you say that you are rich, and, and yet you are poor. You're not self-aware. Um, these are churches that are letting go of Jesus and his teachings. They're letting go of Jesus and his teachings, whether it's around sacrificial generosity or whether it's around Jesus' teaching that sex is reserved for the lifelong covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, or whether it's Jesus' teaching that while political powers might get your taxes and your respect, they do not get your pledged allegiance. Only Jesus gets that. Five of the seven churches are letting go of Jesus on this. Remember Jesus said, render to Caesar what Caesar is. It's his coin. It's not your allegiance. Your allegiance is your whole person. Render to God what's God's, Jesus says. And, and so five of these seven churches are letting go of this because they're intoxicated with the classic big three, sex, money, power, which seems to tell me something as an American Christian. Uh, and it's this. I, I think it's safe to say the American church uniquely should be paying attention to these messages from Jesus. Because for sure the message is for the whole church in every country, but these, these messages are specifically addressing greed and, and power abuse and sexual immorality, to use an English Bible word, which means sex with someone you're not married to. And, and these, these, these things, they feel uniquely pertinent for Jesus followers who live in America, which just happens to be the biggest economic, political superpower, which also happens to be the birthplace of the sexual revolution. Um, so the church in this location should be really perking up because it's so contextually correlating, understand. So most of us know what it means that America is an economic power or a political superpower. We know that. We can think rich, powerful. But do we all know what the sexual revolution is? Do you know what that is? Have you ever looked into the sexual revolution? I actually think it's worth taking a few minutes to talk about this, again, since, again, sexual sin um, and idol worship seem to be the two that Jesus gets really specific about. So it's fair to follow the text and, and really understand how that applies. So the sexual revolution, you guys, it was kickstarted in the United States in the 1960s, and it is almost impossible to overstate the influence of the sexual revolution on how you and I are thinking about sex. It's trickled down, it's become our DNA, it's in our marrow. The message of the sexual revolution has formed us so deeply. Um, Time Magazine journalist Mary Eberstadt, she's a famous American essayist, she describes the sexual revolution like this. The sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. Destigmatization and normalization of non-marital sex. That's the success of the sexual revolution. It's pervasive, you guys. It was so wildly successful that it has completely eclipsed the historic Christian view of sex, not just in the public square, that's not new. The public has always kind of had issues uh, with, with sexual flourishing. So uh, the public has always kind of had like a round table discussion. Like let's hear from everyone, kind of like a Mars Hill, let everyone speak. But in, in, so in public is one thing, but in the church, listen, the church is now imbibing and absorbing um, the message of the sexual revolution as though it's the Christian perspective. So it's very interesting what's happening. So let's get our terms, let's get our terms, okay? What is the historic Christian view of sex? So 
in a way, it could be summed up like this. This is from Dr. Bashir, up in Western. He's a mentor of mine and others on staff. The historic Christian view of sex, it's a whole person connection between a husband and wife to express, confirm, and deepen marital intimacy and covenant love. Okay, and now the culturally dominant view of sex today, it's a pleasurable recreational activity between consenting adults. Or in John Mark, my friend John Mark's words, play for grown-ups is the view. And so for thousands, thousands of years, you guys, the historic Christian sex ethic has fueled the life of the church. As we realize, oh, male, female, image of God, even if you're not married, we need each other as men and women, even if we're unmarried and single. It's not about marriage. It's about humanity as men and women flourishing together, unmarried and married and mutually respecting one another. And it's beautiful, beautiful. And it's so beautiful that all through history, it has influenced the public imagination. It has influenced the public imagination about the purpose, the purpose of sexuality and the power of fidelity and male-female equality and mutual respect. You guys, the idea of consent, it first went mainstream with Jesus. Before Jesus, patriarchal male-dominant systems were the norm and male-female mutual self-giving love was essentially unheard of. And then the Jesus tradition comes along and it's like this beautiful harmony of consent, mutual respect between the sexes and covenant within marriage and then fidelity and trust. And it's this two-way street of, hey, I'm with you, I'm for you, and I will fully respect your whole person with my whole life. But then the 1960s roll around and the sexual revolution grabs that one part of the Christian view, which is consent, and basically elevates that over all the rest to become the only measurement for determining sexual goodness. And now not only is the historic view seen as oppressive and immoral in the West, but now, listen, even parts of the, ch the Western church are baptizing the culturally dominant view and calling it Christian. So, all of that to bring us into the text because this is the kind of church that Jesus is speaking to even now. Jesus is coming into this moment, into our kind of cultural moment and our church situated within it and he's speaking these seven messages with love. And to make his point, he follows a pattern, okay? All of that, he, he, he follows this pattern. Each letter has a pattern and they're the same. Um, I think this is going to be amazing, by the way, and maybe even shocking for some of us. Um, in, in each message, Jesus does this stuff. He first, he introduces himself using an image from chapter one. You know, the picture of Jesus, like eyes of fire, legs of bronze, uh, hands and feet, and the thunder roaring from his mouth, and the, and, and the sword, his mouth has a sword coming out of it that cuts. Like all those pictures, metaphors, he brings one into each letter. Um, depending on the needs of each church. And then Jesus does this. He, then he goes straight to this. I love it. He tells each church what he knows about them. And listen, six out of seven times, it's encouraging. He's like, hey, I know that you have a heart to follow me. We're going to get to the tough stuff. But most importantly, I like you. <laughs> Like, I like you, I, I know your heart, and I, I appreciate the gift that you're bringing into the world, like genuinely. Jesus is only genuine. He's never sarcastic. In, in, in an, yeah, he's just never sarcastic. He's very, he's, he says, I know this about you, and I love it, and when he says that, he means it. And then Jesus clearly tells each church what he doesn't like. He's very clear. I have this against you, fill in the blank. And then, so, so Jesus has something positive to say about every church except one. You guys, this shows the character of Jesus toward you. Even though he has hard truth to give all of us, not just American Christians, but every Christian, every church, he wants, he's, the way, following Jesus is hard. Jesus knows this because following the Father was hard for him. And, he, and, and as he says, follow me, he's like, I know your works, I know your deeds, 
I know you have a heart for truth. Like to Ephesus, he's like, I know you have a heart for truth, but man, you're really proud of being right. But I, but I love what, the way you fight for truth. Come on. First thing I want to say is, well done. He's, he does this to all, everyone except one, Laodicea. He just has to go straight to the criticism. There's almost nothing to say about them. Um, but this shows the character of Jesus toward you. Six out of seven times he has, he comes with encouragement. Um, and I want to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe God is like that to you? Like really? To speak, to speak bluntly, if you, if you believe God's posture, his primary posture towards you is shame, then I reject that God along with you and every atheist in the world. So like, that's not right. J Jesus, first and foremost, his posture towards you is, is I like you. And here's what I like about you very specifically. Do you believe this? Do you hear his voice? And, 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 and then Jesus has the critical words for all churches except two. Do you know which two? He doesn't have any criticism for at all. Um, it's the suffering ones, right? So if you're suffering today, then Jesus' goal is that you would accept his refreshment even if he's not gonna remove the suffering. Picture Jesus himself in a garden sweating, crying, and his friends betray, about to betray him. Actually, they have already, and now they're sleeping. And, and he's like, Father, if there's any other, any other way. I already know what you've said, but I kind of want to, I don't want to disobey, but I want to like maybe find a loophole or something. If there's any other way. And if that's how you're coming in, like I'm suffering and I, I'm just giving this my last shot and I'm sitting here and I don't know why. You're in good company. And do you believe that all Jesus has for you is an invitation to enjoy him. And then after encouragement and enjoyment and refreshment, then Jesus tells every church what they need to do. Like, remember what you did. Repent. That word repent, he uses. And I know the word repent is like, it's fallen on hard times um, because we, we immediately get pictures of 1960s preachers in the South or something. I don't know why that comes to mind. Repent. But for, and, and I just, when I hear the word repent, I don't react the way I'm supposed to because the word supposed to mean what it meant to the first hearers. And that's, hey, the kingdom of God is breaking in. Things are more than they seem. The veil is thin. Christ is good right behind there. And if he's the center of reality, what parts of your life aren't in the center with him? Don't you want to bring them and flourish and have life? So Rethink your thinking is repent. If reality is as good as Jesus says it is, rethink everything. That's why it's good news. That's why repentance is part of good news. It's an invitation to bring your whole life into the middle of God's space, God's heart, God's presence. Where God first comes to you, like, I like you. I'm in. I'm into you. Like, be in it with me. Like, this this is a beautiful place. Reality is beautiful and I'm beautiful and become beautiful with me. And so, um, yeah, you, so this is clear. We can trust this Jesus. He calls the church to overcome. Come on, it's gonna be hard, but it's gonna be worth it, overcome. And he promises, don't just, don't just muscle it out on your own. I'm with you. Do you see? I'm with you. And then we know from the rest of the apocalypse of Jesus that overcoming means Hold on to the teachings of Jesus under pressure. Hold on to the, the way of Jesus when, when the fire gets turned up, when things get difficult, when it would be, you think it would be easier to be a Christian if you just kind of bailed. But remember, things are more than they seem. Things are more than they seem. This is the delicate invitation of the apocalypse for every broken heart. Things are more than they seem. And then finally, Jesus ends each message saying, when you do overcome, there is a unique reward. <laughs> and go through each reward in every letter. My goodness, to him who overcomes, I'll give a crown of life. That last letter that Joel read, Laodicea, to him who overcomes, to them who overcome, I will give them a seat in the seat I sit in when I sat at the right hand of the Father. <laughs> ruling with authority in his prayer. What is that even going to be? What does that mean? We can't even fathom 
the beginnings of what that means. But it's yours. It's the reward for the overcomer. Things are more than they seem. Tuesday morning is going to be hard this week for you. But things are more than they seem. Last week was one of the hardest weeks of ministry for me, uh, for just internal stuff that I can't get into, of just deep, difficult relational tension and, and leading clearly through difficult conversations, tears, nightmares actually at night thinking about it, and, and, and then just came to a resolve on, on one of the days of the week there was this conversation that just, it just birthed so much unity despite the difficulty and it's like, oh my gosh, to him who overcomes, to them who overcome, hold fast, to them who overcome, I will reward you and I'm always here and things are more than they seem. Things are more than they seem. And then Jesus ends by saying, hear. Will you hear what the Spirit says to the churches? Now here's where it gets interesting. So I just gave you the pattern. Every letter does that. Now here's where it gets interesting and maybe even shocking to some of us. If you're paying attention, you noticed I didn't call these seven messages letters. Normally we call them the seven letters to the seven churches. And that's okay, but that's not the word Jesus uses in the text. Actually, um, I'm not calling them, I'm calling them messages because that's what they are. Letters in scripture have a formula where it starts, you know, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, and I, Paul, say to you, or I, John, right? This starts with the name. That's how the whole book of Revelation starts as a letter. I, John, saw this vision. But these little letters don't start that way. They're not the same. They're not the same genre. In fact, the genre, how these letters are even structured from Jesus shows us something shocking about Jesus. So just, that's, that's the setup. So um, according to New Testament scholar David, David Ayun, what we have in Revelation 2 and 3 is this new genre in the Bible. It's unique. It tells us who Jesus is. The seven messages, they would have been familiar. Their, their shape would have triggered. It would have sparked the, the lights on the dashboard for the first readers, the first hearers. So, so they're Romans and they're Jews. And they're like, oh, I've heard this before. Because it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. This says the bright and morning star. It's like a pronouncement from an authority. And they'd be like, whoa, this is like political cartoons or something. That, the closest thing we have to this is a political cartoon where you see a donkey and an elephant duking it out and the elephant has a toupee and, may, and, and then the donkey's really old and then they're boxing or whatever. And you know exactly, you feel, if you saw that, you'd, you'd immediately feel, oh, this is real life, this is a, a message. This, this is what Jesus is writing here with words. It's like a political cartoon. And Jesus is standing in as the emperor, Caesar? Jesus is standing in as Caesar. So these letters, uh, sorry, these messages, they have a prophetic and an imperial edict quality to them, intentionally. This is how they were intended to be written and read. The prophetic part comes from their Jewish background, uh, and, and the imperial edict comes from the Roman world. And so seven times, Jesus, in these seven letters, seven messages, seven times he says, tade lege in Greek which is what Caesar says when he starts his edicts and writes it on a parchment and nails it to the walls of every city-state in the Roman Empire. Tare lege. This says the son of Zeus from Mount Olympus on the throne of Rome or whatever. Tare lege. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're not really the authority of the world. Watch me. Watch me now. Tare lege. And Jesus does the same thing to subvert the powers that be. And also, tare lege is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, in, in the Greek Bibles that were around when this was written. So he's getting all, everyone, he's getting, Jesus is getting everyone right now. Jesus is saying, thus says Yahweh, wink, wink, I am. And, and he's also saying, thus says the actual, the actual, so if, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. That's what the message is. If Jesus is Lord, your Caesar is not, your president is not. 
The Oval Office is not. That's, he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. The Satan's throne was a politically sanctioned, idol-worshiping Roman state religious spot. And he's like, I love my church in that city where Satan's throne is. So this genre of letter, this genre of writing, this, these messages are a hybrid of emperor's edicts and prophetic Jewish writings. And this new genre, it communicates something about Jesus that's radical. Slide 10, Jesus is speaking as the royal emperor. Do you have that? Here it is, yeah. He's issuing solemn and authoritative edicts befitting his status as ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is also speaking as the living God with a word of warning and blessing befitting his status as the glorified son of man and beloved son of God, the great I am. The genre of the seven messages itself proclaims Jesus as the true emperor, prime minister, governor, whatever. You name the power. Jesus is the real one, actually, in the world. No wonder the early Christians were getting busted, right? They were in trouble. No wonder John's writing Revelation from the political prison on the island of Patmos. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the true emperor, the true Caesar, the true Caesar. That we, we say this phrase, Jesus is Lord, but we sing it in worship songs, Jesus is Lord, and I think it just goes over our individualist democratic heads, you know? It just goes over our heads. In, in the Gentile world, Lord is a title given to the sovereign, Caesar. In the Jewish word, it's given to Yahweh, only Yahweh. The, gener the genre of Revelation 2 and 3 is making a statement, Jesus is the emperor of emperors and God of gods. You know what this means? We better listen. Like all in, whole person listen, like reflective listen, like repeat back to him what he said, listen, like therapy listening, you know? We better listen. In fact, that's what the church developing doctrine for 2,000 years is. It's the church in therapy with Yahweh. God speaks through his son, and then the whole church for 2,000 years by the power of the Spirit says, all right, I heard you. And God's like, what did I say? Who do you say that I am? And then the church says, we believe in God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven, maker of earth, and Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And there you have the creeds and the development of doctrine and Christian unity. It's all love. It's all reflective listening. It's all a response to him saying, hear me. Let me see you hear me. Come, not just to be right, but to have life, to step into reality. So we better listen. When this Jesus speaks, we better listen. Who else would you want to hear? Who, who else? I keep channeling Peter, like, who else has the words of life? Only you. Is that, do you believe that? Or, or maybe there's a part of your life that you're hesitant to bring under his goodness. And then he says, to the church, seven times. To the church of Ephesus, Sardis, Pergamum. To the church, to the church, to the church. And the word Jesus used for church, I don't, I'm not a big fan of Greek on Sundays. I don't do Greek on Sundays. I try to just say what I mean. But this one's kind of important. Do you know the Greek word for church? Ekklesia is the Greek word. Ekklesia. Here's why that's important to bring up and to waste your valuable time on a language we don't speak. Sorry. But... Uh, Ecclesia, in his book, at, at the Origins of Christian Worship, Larry Hurtado says, the, that word, ecclesia, it's a strange choice. Jesus chose a strange word to describe a gathering of Christians. Why was it weird? It's strange, it's interesting, because in the first century, the word ecclesia was not about religion. Everything in the first century was religious in one sense, but ecclesia was not the word for what happened in religions. There were plenty of other words, temples, rites, Jews used the word synagogue, that was a word for the gathering of Jews, synagogue. Why didn't Jesus say to the synagogue in the church of Point Loma, why didn't Jesus say that? There's a reason. As Larry Hurtado puts it, ecclesia described the gathering of citizens of a city to do civic business. 
That was the ecclesia in Rome. It was like town hall for Caesar when Caesar would come to town and they'd talk about the affairs of the city. You guys, that's amazing. The Greek and Romans worshiped a ton of gods, but their ecclesia was not about the gods per se. It was about let's get down to business. Let's see what the city needs. Let's see what the city wants, what the city longs for, and let's get in there. We're the authority here. You guys, that's what the ecclesia is. Do, do, are you here? I mean, I take ownership. If you're, if you're like, whoa, I've never thought of that, I take ownership for that. I need to teach on this more. <laughs> if this is new to you, that's on teachers. So this is who we are according to like Jesus. And by the way, the old, this is important, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and when they translated congregations into Greek, they did use the word ekklesia, but by the time of the early church, the Jews weren't using that word anymore. It was predominantly synagogue. But Jesus says, no, I want that word. That word matters to cities. That word matters to cultures. That word matters in in the face of Caesar. This is actually my city, Jesus says. So, so, so that's powerful to me. So next slide, Ecclesia has a clear meaning. It's assemblies of people summoned by the emperor in the Gentile world and by the living God in the Jewish world to conduct the business of the city. So question, is this how you view your Sunday gathering? And not just the gathering, but you get into your communities and you conspire with the spirit to love your neighborhood well because that is how the city gets healthy. That is how the kingdom takes hold and Satan's stuff gets plundered back into the dominion of light by the fruit of the spirit coming out of your your cells and your spirits, union with the spirit of God. And as you you embody the fruit of the spirit in a community, it's, it's, it's so much more powerful than an elected official or a voting booth. As, as the, do that too as part of, as one thing that you do. It, but in the whole politic, you guys, we're an alternative politic to the puny spectrum on offer every election cycle. We are the alternative politic of God in the world. And we show up by embodying the fruit of the Spirit and that is so powerful. And, and so, so is, if Jesus is the emperor of emperors and God of gods, of course he cares about San Diego. Of course he does. He says to the messenger, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to, to the ecclesia of Laodicea, to the ecclesia of San Diego, thus says the bright morning star, the true emperor. So we conduct the business of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. We conduct the business of the one lasting empire in the midst of all the crumbling ones. Or as it will be, America's just the latest, greatest, whatever, superpower on the assembly line of empire-ish looking powers. It's just the latest, they'll crumble. Supreme Court justices will pass. And if, and if, that, if that is your primary motivator or fear driving you in the world, if you're like, oh, I'm afraid of democracy being lost or whatever, if that's where your heart is primarily, I would encourage you to hear the true emperor. Hear the true Jesus, who's currently reigning king of the world. And, and that, he's, he doesn't run a democracy. <laughs> he runs a monarchy. He's king. He's, a, he's as, as Dan Braga, a pastor at Neighbors, calls it, he's the benevolent dictator of the universe. <laughs> all loving, all good, all present. Here's how to think about this practically. The health of San Diego is related to the health of the church in San Diego. A city, to put it different, a city will be as holy and therefore healthy as the ecclesia in that city. So what we do when we're together in the name of God, scripture, bread, cup, practicing the way of Jesus, our Sabbath is resistance to the anxiety and workaholism of San Diego. We will not be infiltrated by the mantra of culture that says you have to do in order to matter. We are loved before we lift a finger, and Sabbath reminds us that God is perfectly capable of running the world without our help. So we Sabbath as warfare. Warfare against the battle inside of us, not out there, in us. The culture wars is not the wars to fight. 
It's this spiritual word that starts here. That's why Jesus isn't speaking, to Caesar I write this, get out of Rome or whatever. Jesus doesn't do that. He speaks directly to his beloved people. And so I love this definition of the church from Daryl Johnson. He says, we are ordinary, broken people summoned by and gathered around the crucified, risen, and ascended and coming Jesus to share in the life of Jesus, which means entering into and enjoying the life of the Trinity, and to be engaged in the business of Jesus in the city, which is the work of the kingdom of God, the empire of God in the city. I love that. You guys, another way of, that, another way of describing that work is the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> the best thing for San Diego is the fruit of the Spirit through your life of faith, courageously lived out, in community that says, I'm with you, I'm with you to the end. Like, I'm, I'm for your flourishing, you're for mine. There's nothing, nothing more powerful than that uh, in the world. So, as the Emperor Caesar expanded his kingdom, so too, Emperor Jesus, the next slide, as he expands his reign in the world, his kingdom in the world, he sets up these ecclesias in every city. As administrative outposts of his rule, he gathers us together to become another city within the city, to have a vision, a value system, and behaviors of a radically alternative empire. You guys, we are really an alternative politic to the thin political spectrum that we're being sold, that is thriving on our anger and our vitriol and when we don't manifest the fruit of the Spirit, that empire wins. It's clear. It's just literally algorithms on, in the internet win. When, when we manifest the acts of the flesh, hostility, instead of peacemaking, love, joy, joy. Don't you want joy again? Like peace and actual patience, giving people space to be late, <laughs> giving people space is patience. And then, and then welcoming people into your space is kindness. There's certain people in this room, I'm just like, man, when I'm, when I'm with them for 60 seconds, it's the best 60 seconds of my day, just their atmosphere is, is so much kindness. Because that transforms countries, kindness does. Jesus perfectly manifested the fruit of the Spirit, and look what he did for three years of ministry. And look at the impact. And then he says, my people filled with my spirit are going to do even greater things. John 14. Do you believe this? This is the call of the ecclesia. 2.56 billion broken, imperfect, spirit-filled, Christ-confessing, true emperor-trusting citizens of heaven on earth are continuing to grow, continuing to grow. what does this all mean? It means you guys have hope because our courage comes from the king. Your courage to overcome when it's tough, that courage is sourced in the king who's the center of everything already. We just can't totally see it. The veil's there. We come to the table for the veil to get thin. We come to the table and Jesus says, this is my body. That's why for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has debated, really the primary debate about the communion bread and cup, the primary debate is like, is this actually Jesus' body transforming into my, into my throat as I swallow it, or is it just really his presence in some way we just don't get it? Because it's definitely not just a symbol. It's not just a symbol. It doesn't just represent Jesus. Because Jesus didn't say, this represents my body. There's a Greek word for that he didn't use. He said, this is my body. Something of his, of his presence comes to us thickly, and the veil between us and Jesus gets thin. When we as a church come to the table and trust what he says here, and as we do that, we realize Oh, our power to overcome, it doesn't, we, don't, we don't muster it up. It comes from Jesus, who's already here. And he just says to hear him. 
And when we obey him, we see. If we don't obey him, we stop hearing. It doesn't mean we'll always see clearly and we won't suffer. No, Jesus suffered and definitely dealt with doubt in the garden. Like, God, if there's another loophole, give it to me. I know what you've said, but man, I don't necessarily like it. If that's how you feel, you are in good company, the invitation is to come in here. The voice of the true emperor and true God is coming to you personally, right now, whatever you're facing. And, he's, and he says this, hey, living faithfully is hard. So worth it though, trust me, I know. It's hard. But hope is real because we're not alone, because things are more than they seem. The great unseen reality that this apocalypse invites us to glimpse is we're surrounded and empowered by the true emperor and God himself. And not just that, not, he's not just here, but listen to what he says. Are you ready for this? This gets me every time. So here I am, see that? He just exposed himself. He's, look, here. Here I am. And then he says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they will with me. He's like, they're gonna want this meal. Trust me, you're gonna want this meal. So I grew up hearing that verse. Let's keep it up for the rest of the time just because it's amazing. So I grew up hearing that verse more in the context of like an unbeliever becoming a Christian. Like, hey, are you, do you follow Jesus? No, well then, he's knocking, let him in. Which is true, that's true. But that's actually not what the context of this verse. Jesus is using these words for the ecclesia. He's speaking to you, he's speaking to the, those, you're, you're, like, you're like, I'm in, it just sucks, I'm, it's so hard. I'm in, it's just, I don't know if I believe it like I used to. I'm seeking God, yeah, I'm walking with God, trying to figure it out, I'm tripping, I'm falling. I mean, I guess I might be compromising around sex, but I don't even know what I believe about that. Money and politics, I don't even know, Evan, why you said that in this sermon. <laughs> or, or maybe you're here and you're, there's a mask that you're hiding behind because forget about sharing the true you with someone you're too busy hiding the true you from you. Uh, and so you come in with a mask, and like to use Jesus' words, you're pretending you're alive when you're dead inside. And so you put on a false self, or you're confused about your relationships right now, tons of questions, and, and you're here, and you're, you're, in, you're in the orbit. And listen, it's to that group of people, Jesus is like, hey, can, I, can we do dinner? Like, I really like you. Like, can we, can we eat together and drink? So he says to you, sure you have anxiety and questions, and maybe sin is a live issue in your life. It's like sin is active, going, all that. But Jesus is like, yes, I have a better way. I have the best way in mind for you. But listen, like right now, all you need to do is, is hear, hear my voice and, and open the door. What would that look like for you today? Step one, step, you're thinking step three, step four. Yeah, if I do hear him and obey, then what happens step three, four? What does that mean for step five? He's like, no, like, everyone has steps. Like, let's not talk about steps. Uh, will you open the door? Step one, just hear and obey. That's the agenda. It's not even an agenda. That's just, wouldn't it be nice? Don't you want to enjoy each other again? This is Jesus. This is the heart of these messages. He's not just the true emperor and God. He is, he is that and more. But he's, he's inviting himself in, like he did with Zacchaeus. Hey, Zacchaeus, I know you're an outcast, but you're like really into trying to catch a glimpse. So I'm coming to your house. I, I always love when people invite themselves to my house because that's Jesus. Jesus, that's very Christian. <laughs> it's, it may not be American. You wait for an invitation, but Jesus doesn't care about all, all our customs. He's like, I'm coming to your house today. And this is what he's doing to you right now. He's like, I'm coming. You do have to open. If you bar the door, I'm not, I don't want to ruin your framing or whatever, but like, I'll, I'll, I'll be knocking. 
Let's enjoy each other again. Let's eat and drink. You guys, Jesus does this a lot. The true God sets a table for you. And, and maybe you're like, wait, Evan, I'm getting mixed messages. Last week you said, he's in the center of the church and he'll never leave. But now you're like, he walked outside and, and now he's outside knocking. Um, yeah, here, because we don't look and listen, Jesus always comes around again. He, he's like, okay, right now you're not hearing, you're not listening, I get it. Let me, let's take a second. And he goes outside and he knocks again. And he does it over and over. He's like, hey, would you open the door again? I'm never, I'm always gonna love when you open the door. And I'm never gonna say I told you so, ever. I, I found that that's a big moment of shame relief for people. People are freed from shame when, when they're thinking, man, I screwed up, I messed up, and if I come back and say sorry or whatever, it's just so embarrassing, it's like so shameful. Um, because we think God says, I told you so. That's not remotely part of his way of doing anything, ever. He's just knocking. He's like, I love the part where you open. I wanna see that again. You guys, do you, do you wanna enjoy God again?